Okay, this morning I will be turning in reading and dealing with two passages, Isaiah 53 and Romans 3. So you can turn, mark, or be prepared. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the grace of your Holy Spirit in your church and in the office of a pastor, teacher, work. Help me unfold the core of your glory in Jesus Christ this morning. Help us grasp See, love, the beauty of the cross more than ever before, I pray. Amen. This is the ninth week in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. What I want to do, in a nutshell, is give a summary of the last seven weeks first. We have seen that God created us for His glory. That we would, in other words, glorify Him by being happy in Him for who He is. In the Garden of Eden, God gave that one command. Freely eat of every tree walking and fellowshipping with God in the cool of the day. But do not eat of that tree of independence. Do not eat of that tree that says, you will decide apart from me what happiness is, what good is, what evil is. Don't do that. And we saw our representative, Adam, his wife Eve, ate, disobeyed. And the essence of that was I don't trust you, God, that you're out for my happiness, for my good forever. And therefore, they exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And last week, we saw God's righteousness, His justice, His love for His glory perfectly respond to human sin in eternal condemnation and judgment. And now that brings us to this morning. How can God show mercy to sinners after the fall? The answer is that Jesus was as a lamb slain from before the creation of the world. This morning's sermon is, in my mind, so huge to understand the rest of where we will be going throughout Genesis and Exodus and the law and the history of Israel and the prophets into the coming of Jesus. Because we're going to have to ask the question, how could God, yes, bring judgment upon the whole world in Noah, Yes, bring judgment on many and then show mercy to him, to her, and to those people. How could he do that? 
and be just? And the answer is because Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Even before time and space in his humanity, he actually accomplished it. This, right there, Christ killed is the central motive and goal of all that exists. In the death of Jesus, the two themes of God's love for His glory and His love for sinners are resolved. In Jesus Christ, God has acted in a way that saves us from His wrath and at the same time is upholding His glory. That's the cross. Eternal condemnation is one way in which God upholds His glory. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the other way He is upholding His glory. In order to grasp why Jesus had to die, we need to feel that tension. You need to be God-centered. You need to understand the tension between God's glory and how forgiveness of sins is a threat to that glory if not done in such a way that upholds His glory. The tension is how can God uphold His glory? That is, not take Himself lightly when there are enemies of Him called sinners, but at the same time forgive and share the beauty and the essence of His glory with those sinners who have spurned that glory and share it with them forever. How does that happen? And the answer is in the death and the resurrection of the man, Jesus that resolves the tension. So I first want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a prophecy of Jesus. 700 years before He was born. We read first in verse 10. And yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. God has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. 700 years before. Jesus was born. That crushing that the Lord willed is the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, making Himself an offering for sin, for the guilt of His people. 
Look at verse 8. It makes it clear that the crushing here is unto death. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And again in verse 12. He poured out His soul to death. And so when verse 10 says, He then, He shall see His offspring, it means that the fruit of His suffering, the fruit of His guilt-offering death will be many people saved from sin, guilt, judgment, and death. And that's confirmed in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Sin. So first, the text is clear. God killed Jesus. Verse 10 again. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Jesus was not tortured and killed ultimately by the anger and the wrath of uncontrolled creatures. Men, He was crushed, killed by the Father. It was not a fluke and it was not an accident, but it was as the Apostle Peter declared in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 to his fellow Jews. As you yourselves know this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. It was God's definitive plan to crush His Son. Why? Why did God do it? The answer is in order to solve the tension between His love for His glory and His love for sinners. See, look at verse 6, Isaiah 53. Here's the problem, right? All, that, that means all, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of independence. Oh, so, okay. We have all turned, every one of us, to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. 
God did that. God the Father laid upon Jesus in His humanity the sin and sins and spiritual death of all who will believe in Him. And therefore the Son was crushed because God dishonoring sin could not be ignored. Why? Why couldn't God just be big? Let bygones be bygones. Okay, so you spurn my glory there, but just not worry about it. Just sweep that under the rug. We have seen the answer over the previous weeks. He couldn't do that because God loves the honor of His glory and He values His essence as Holy Trinity above all things. He will not, He cannot act as if sin, which is a direct attack and affront on His glory, didn't really matter that much. Because that would be the same as saying, I, the glorious God, the holy God, the essence of righteousness and justice and beauty and joy, I don't really matter that much. And he will not ever deny himself. Because that would be sinful. And so the question of the universe is how can God remain righteous in fully honoring Himself, His glory, while at the same time showing mercy to sinners, to people who have so sinned and desecrated His glory, have spurned, turned away, spat at His glory. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus repaired the injury that we people have inflicted on God's glory. Jesus satisfied justice. And this is the only way sinful people can be forgiven of their sin. Can be shown mercy the cross. So, there are two big questions now I, I, I want to pose and answer concerning that. The first is this. How could one man suffer for so many and it be justice? Secondly, then to ask, even if Jesus only died for one, why is that just for an innocent person in God's judicial system 
just to be a substitute for guilty. So the first question. How could the punishment for everybody, how could the punishment for every one of our sins, indeed even our whole sinful life, which we saw last week, each person deserves justly an unending, eternal punishment. And then you add two of those together. And you add three of those together. And you add three billion of those together. How could one man pay that price who only lived 36, 37 years? Who only hung on the cross six hours and said, it's finished. The question is, how could one man pay the immense price for so many persons in such a short time? The answer has to do with the person who did it. It has to do with the glory that Jesus laid aside in His incarnation and death. The starting place is to understand who we are talking about. As Hebrews 1 declares, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, His Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact image or imprint of His nature. And He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's who He is. In the beginning was the Word. The Logos and the Word was with God and the Word was God and all things were created through Him and apart from Him there was not anything made that was made. And the Word became a human being and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. How could one man in such a short time pay the price that is at least equal, if not more, than all the sins that deserve eternal hell of billions of people? The answer has to do with this. Jesus descended the infinite staircase between Creator and creature. Though He Himself, the person, was not created, but that person, the divine second person of the Trinity, took another nature to himself 
and became man. As Paul declares it in Philippians chapter 2, though Jesus was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped meaning which would cause him to say, I'm not going to become human. I will not descend the staircase. He didn't do that. He did descend. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Each downward step increased the gravity of Jesus' suffering, pain. And then on the cross as He hung there, God's wrath and fury against sin was poured out upon Him. It was more than equivalent to all the sin of every sinful lifetime of all who will believe. He was born into a poor family in the middle of nowhere on earth. He was born in a smelly, stinky animal stall or cave. They cleaned it out and wrapped him, but he was put into a feeding bowl for animals for his crib. His mom and dad with him as a baby had to escape to Egypt from Herod's wrath. Eventually then went back to the hometown of Nazareth, which is really a nowhere place. And he grew up and he was raised and learned the blue collar trade of carpentry and as a woodworker in obscurity until he's about 30 years old. And then he starts to preach. And then he was sold, betrayed for 30 lousy pieces of silver. And then in the garden, we see him in his humanity, agonizing over what lay before him, which is more than the horrific physical torture, but the wrath of God. Is there any other way? And there isn't. And he's arrested, and he's hit, he's spit upon, he's beaten. And then he hears for the third time his buddy Peter say, I do not know that man. And Jesus looked at him. And then he was tortured. And then he hung totally naked on wood. 
and God's wrath was poured out upon him. The enormity of his suffering because of who he was was more than equivalent and satisfactory to the desert of all sinners. That's how one man in such a short time could pay the price for all. Second question. How is it just for an innocent person to say, I will take the judicial sentence of the guilty criminal at all? We will not allow that in the state of California precisely because the people will rise up and say that is not justice. Because the glory of the state, which is for the good and happiness and freedom of law-abiding citizens, is at stake. And therefore, the state cannot be indifferent or uncaring when it comes to the perpetrators, lawbreakers, and evildoers. But it must, this is justice, repair by appropriate punishment, sentencing, $38. You parked too long here. You took freedom from others who want to park there. Okay. Death for first-degree premeditated murder. Twelve years for assault, breaking into a private home, etc. The state must repair the injury by depriving from the criminal an equivalent amount of happiness, freedom to pursue that happiness that they have stolen from another. <coughs> Only then is the glory of the state upheld. The state will lose the public's confidence. If a mother whose son clearly DNA evidence and all committed four murders and is sentenced to death. And she pleads with the court, please let me be put to death instead of my son. If the state of California said, okay, as long as someone dies, trust me, we the people would rise up. And at the core of the problem is, it's because the state is saying, I don't care about the glory of the state, which is the good of the people, which is shown through the appropriate equivalent punishment of evildoers. It would say, yeah, forget about that for a while. I hear and feel the pain, and we all do, of the mother's love for her son. And I'm going to put that first and foremost. So we would say it's unjust to, to have a substitute. But you open up the Bible, and it's clear. 
the innocent one, the sinless one, the one who is absolutely not guilty, is a substitute bearing the judicial punishment of the guilty. How is that possible? How is that just? The answer is because in so doing, unlike the mother's compassion and feelings for her son, the ultimate and foundational motive in Jesus being the substitute was to not push to the side the glory of the state or the glory of God, but it was to uphold and extend the glory of God in forgiving sinners. The motive of Jesus going to the cross was not in order to restore the ruined reputation of us sinners. It was to glorify God in forgiving sinners. Days before His death, Jesus declares in John 12, Now is my soul troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, guys. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he prayed in front of him. Father, glorify your name. That's the cross. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The night before he was killed, he said to his disciples, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So the point is this. Ultimately, the motive in Christ's death was the glory of the state. It was the glory of God. To forgive Guilty sinners. How? By turning away righteous judicial sentence, wrath, onto His Son. And in so doing, God is showing the infinite worth and value of Himself, of His glory. we got to get that to really grasp why the cross is true and how it works. 
Jesus' death never implied that it repaired our ruined reputations. But it repaired and it upheld and it extended through mercy the worth and the value of the glory of God. It was just for Christ to be the substitute because the ultimate motive was to value the glory of God, to uphold the glory of God, to extend the glory of God through mercy. And that's the essence of his sinlessness. Why did Jesus have to be sinless? Think about it. If he wasn't, then that would mean that at some time, in some way, he acted without absolute God-word motive. But God, I'm more overcome with the pain and suffering of Joe LeMay more than your glory. Sinful. He's sinless. Which shows his substitution was never to sweep the glory of the state or the glory of God under the rug is not important, but it was to show it forth, essential in what he was doing. That's why he had to be sinless. Jesus' sinlessness meant that the purpose throughout his entire life was always the glory of God in perfect righteousness. Even in the very moment as he hung on the tree and he quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which God did. The Father in crushing him, even then knew every, every motive and purpose of the humanity of Jesus was for the glory of God flawlessly. And so the Father took great delight in Christ, even while forsaking him on the cross, as Isaiah foretold. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Oh, the gospel is such good news. Because the cross and the resurrection of Jesus guarantees to everyone who believes absolute 
unending, eternal forgiveness of sins and Christ's righteousness to their place. Why? Why does it guarantee it? Because it is rooted in God's glory. That's why. Jesus died to uphold God's glory in forgiving believers. I want you to listen carefully. This is a verse that probably every one of you in here knows by heart. But pay attention to the words. 1 John 1.9 If we, he's writing to Christians now. Okay. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just. stop. That sounds weird. It's like going to the county courtroom, criminal court. <laughs> okay, if I just confess to the judge I committed the murder, he's going to forgive me and let me go, right? Because he's just. It doesn't make any sense. Because he's just. I'm doomed. But we, criminals, sinners, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because His justice was upheld in the cross. And He will not deny His justice. He will not and indeed cannot deny Himself His glory. It is our hope. And so John goes on to say in chapter 2 these bewildering words until you see the Gospel. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God's name is on the line for everyone who flees for refuge in Jesus. In response to the Gospel, the good news, Christ died for sins and was raised from the dead. If you believe that, you cannot not be forgiven. Ever. He must forgive us. I say that on purpose. He must forgive us when we have saving faith, when we believe, when we confess our sins, or He would not be loving His glory. And he will never deny himself. One more passage. Turn to Romans 3. Because now we got the big picture. Let's get the microscope out of Romans 3. 
and look at the cross and ask, what was happening there that all that's true? Because Paul lets us know how this is resolved. The tension between God's righteousness and His mercy to sinners. Verse 23 to 26, the Apostle Paul writes, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's work our way slowly again through this. Paul sees a problem. And it's dealt with here. And the problem was this. God letting sin happen and still letting rain fall and their crops grow and give them breath of life. And I don't see any judgment. What's happening? And God showing mercy and forgiving the sins of many people before Jesus came. Paul sees that that looks like a miscarriage of justice. So he begins in verse 24, right? Part of the answer is what he says there. Through the redemption. Okay? Redemption there is a big word for through the ransom or through the price. Through the purchase. Something was purchased in the death of Jesus Christ that's going to solve that problem that looks like a miscarriage of justice. Jesus paid a price. Okay, now the question is, okay, what, what happened there? What transaction took place in the death of Jesus? That's the question. And the answer is right there in verse 25a. Propitiation. It's an English word. It's a large English word translating a large Greek word, hilasterion. And they both mean the same thing. Forget the Bible for a moment. Go to the Greeks. Go to the Romans. Go to the... The many gods, the, the storm god. What are we going to do? Let's get an animal. Let's get a person. Let's do something in order to propitiate the wrath of that god. <sighs> so we might live. That's how the word was used. 
Now with the one true God, in the picture of this is all through the Old Testament. Referring to Christ, Paul has no problem using it because he understands that's precisely what was happening. Read verse 25. Whom God, that's Christ, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. It means more than canceling sins. Propitiation means that the wrath, the true wrath of the one true God was not ignored, but was turned away from sinners by directing itself upon the sacrifice that was a substitute. And thus, His wrath was appeased toward those sinners. All's good. That's propitiation. God did it. It says Christ put Him full. I mean, God put Christ forward as a propitiation that bears the wrath of God and thus appeases God's just anger. Now, verse 25b explains why that had to happen. It explains why propitiation had to happen. This was, that is, the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, appeasing the wrath of God. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Okay, you got to get it again. Turn the logic around what Paul just said. Paul says this is a problem. God was just like not dealing with sins. He was passing over. <coughs> he even declared the sinner Abraham righteous. He was passing over former sins. That's a problem. And therefore, in time and space, finally Christ came. And He vindicated God in all that He did before then by putting Christ forward as a propitiation. Paul said the problem was God looked like He's unrighteous. Looked like He didn't care about people spurning His glory. As Paul said earlier in the text, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin at its core is an attack on God's glory. Righteousness. God is righteous. It's not a part of who God is. It is who He is. He doesn't have parts. He's holy. He's not part holy. He's, he's holy. And He's righteous. And we have seen in the previous weeks that the essence of His righteousness is God's commitment to uphold His glory. And sin of us creatures treats that glory as inconsequential. 
not so great. And thus, Paul is saying, God seemed to not take Himself seriously. He seemed to not take His glory seriously. He seemed unrighteous. And God was about making it clear He's vindicating Himself. He is not unrighteous so that He may be righteous, just. And then verse 26 goes on. And it essentially is telling us God would have been unjust in justifying or forgiving any of us sinners in this room if Jesus had not been put forward as a propitiation by His blood. It was to show His righteousness, verse 26, at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is. There are two goals, according to Paul in this passage. God upholding His righteousness and forgiving sinners. And what created the problem is clear. Because He passed over former sins. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He freaks out. He fears. He tries every way possible to get Uriah, her husband, to come back in so that he'll think he got her pregnant from war. He's too righteous to do that. David doesn't know what else to do. Eventually, he is culpable for implicit murder by having him killed by a secret note to the general. Uriah is killed. God sends his prophet, Nathan, to David. Tells him that story and David with his righteous indignation. Yes, exorcism should be killed. How unrighteous. You're the man, David. God didn't ignore his sin, but then he says something that seems to be utterly unjust. Nathan says to him, by the Spirit of God, God has put away your sin. Did he just sweep it under the rug? No one was hide it? That's the problem. And that is a problem. Even though the vast majority of the world doesn't feel that problem at all. And sadly, in today's church world, few feel the problem of God forgiving sins and remaining righteous. They don't even have categories for it because they, before they've cracked the Bible, they've been taught to put humanity at the center. And thus, now let's read. And they can't hear much of what it's saying. But in the context of reality, in the context of Christianity, in the context of the book of Romans, 
The issue is how has the glory of God been treated and what is God's righteous response to it? And so the way that God upholds the worth of His glory and saves sinners is right there in verses 25 and 26. Hear the word of the Lord again. Whom God put forward as a propitiatory sacrifice by His blood, which is to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in God's divine patience, forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness right now at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. According to Paul, that's his two goals. God's righteousness is on the line in his forgiving the sins and justifying, making sinners, criminals, right with the law of God. And that's what he accomplished in Jesus Christ. If God wills to demonstrate the infinite worth of his glory, and he wills to forgive and justify, ungodly persons who have desecrated His glory. If those two are in God's will, then the eternal God in true humanity had to bear the wrath of God to show that God does not take lightly the scorning of His glory. And that's why the word propitiation in verse 25 is so important. Christ is our propitiation. Out of the very love of the glory of God, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was due us so that it would be plain that when we are made righteous, are forgiven, are saved, however you want to put that in the New Testament, all those are right. When we are justified as a gift, God will be manifestly shown as just, righteous, glorious, in counting us sinners as righteous. And that's our hope. Every day, not merely for your initial conversion, Christian. Daily in your communion with God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because His glory is His love. And thus He 
glories in forgiving his children. He does it for his name's sake. And so I close with the question. Did Jesus die for us? Or did He die for the glory of God? The answer is yes. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, how we should love and now sing the old rugged cross. Oh, Father, You are good. For as Paul tells us in Romans 8, You did not hold back or spare Your own Son, but You put Him forward. You gave Him up as a propitiatory sacrifice for all of us who believe. And thus, Throughout the rest of our time here on earth, each and every one of us, how will you not also by Him, through Him, freely, mercifully, and graciously give to us all that we need to make it unto the glorification of the resurrection and the kingdom to come on that day?